0: Heavenly Father, we come close to the end of this study knowing you've been faithful all along, Father, to keep us involved and and our heads down and learning and our hearts open to hear the word. And We thank you for that, Father. Your diligence is is never in doubt. Your faithfulness, Father, is evident. And uh, just the mere fact that this word has been preserved for more than 2,000 years so that it would find its way into our hands is proof in itself, Father, that, that you are desiring that we know these things. For you say your word will exist long after the heavens and the earth have gone. How important must it be to you? And so, Lord, I pray that uh, even as we return to things that may sound familiar, things we've studied perhaps in the past, we wouldn't let that become a barrier, Father, to hearing it anew again today and that your spirit would be given room in our hearts to explain things in fuller manner, in a new and better way. And to his in a specific way so that we might consider something in our own life as we walk as a disciple that we can do differently because we can see things we haven't seen before. We ask these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, tonight's message largely centers on the trial of Jesus Christ. This is a night of some political intrigue. We get to see some of the machinations of Roman and Jewish politics and jurisprudence. Last week, we stopped just as the Romans came to arrest Jesus in the garden. John had described the entire scene in a certain way. We said last week his emphasis compared to the Synoptic Gospels is in the emphasis of Jesus' ultimate authority and his control over these circumstances. And of course, as he's done all along, John is not trying to reveal every detail, knowing so much has already been covered in the other Gospels. He picks his targets carefully. He emphasizes certain things, filling in certain gaps along the way. So his concern as we go back into the trial and the arrest in the trial is how Jesus uses circumstances that he fully controls to advance the program of God in the process. So even as Jesus declared his identity in the garden and you remember his voice caused the soldiers to fall back and to recoil at the sound of his name, he invites them to get back up and pick up where they left off so that he can see Done What he knows must be done. That's where we pick up again. Verse seven. Therefore, he again asked them, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus, the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these go their way to fulfill the word which he spoke of those whom you've given me. I lost not one. Simon Peter, then having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. And the slave's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put the sword in the sheath, the cup which the father has given me, shall I not drink it? We'll pause here. So, as I said, after Jesus knocks all the soldiers to the ground, then he calmly asks them, what do you want here? Then, as he answers, he points out that since they want him, let the rest of his entourage, let the disciples go free. And the request makes perfect sense. First, the entire moment has been orchestrated by the Father so that his son would be sacrificed. It hasn't been put together to endanger the disciples. That we know clearly. Secondly, Jesus himself has told his disciples that when he is gone, they'll be left behind to carry on the mission of the ministry. So there's clearly no intent on God's part that these guys get caught up in it. Jesus simply echoes that. And then, interestingly, John quotes from John 6, back after he fed the 5,000, in which he said that none the Father gives him He will ever lose. And you remember, we studied this back in John chapter six. Now you have John quoting it as fulfillment. Now, saying that this moment is a fulfillment of the quote of John six poses a dilemma for us because it would appear that John is saying Jesus, when he said he wouldn't lose any, was speaking of this moment of this moment of the capture. That's what he was talking about back in chapter 6. And now this moment has come along and therefore it is now fulfilled what Jesus said back in chapter 6. But the topic in chapter 6 was something much greater than merely being taken prisoner by Romans. This cannot be the extent of fulfillment for that statement. If you go back to John 6 and in that one moment where Jesus uses these words, this is what you find. John six thirty nine. he said, This is the will of him who sent me that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. Now, notice in the original quote in John 6, Jesus spoke of raising up those who would be given to him by the Father and doing so on the last day. Now, that last day reference is pointing to the last day of the church age. That is the day when all saints will be resurrected into new bodies, as Paul describes in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. But the term raising up implies... A laying down. In other words, resurrection requires a death. As the saying goes, a lot of people want to go to heaven. They just don't want to go through the process of getting there, right, through death. And so Jesus had to have been speaking of something bigger than just what's happening here in John chapter 18. Because if he's saying all the Father gives to me in terms of salvation, I will hold on to all of them and I will raise all of them up on the last day. Well, that isn't the same thing as promising that none of his disciples will come to physical harm. Well, quite the contrary, all of these guys die one way or another, and most of them as martyrs. So it can't simply mean I'm not going to let bad things happen to them. And yet, when I look at chapter 18, John says Jesus's promise is fulfilled in this moment. How do we reconcile those two? Well, the answer is deceptively simple. John is not recording this moment as the final fulfillment of Jesus's comment. Notice he only quotes part of what Jesus said. He only quotes the first part of the words. He says, of those you have given me, I lost not one. He leaves off the part about raising up on the last day. In other words, John's gospel is showing that when Jesus promised he wouldn't lose any of his disciples, he was testifying to his commitment to watch over his sheep at all times. A shepherd's job is to maintain careful watch over the flock at all times. And you remember John 6 is a chapter in which shepherding and sheep and shepherds is the main motif, the main discussion. So the ultimate measure, the ultimate criteria for whether you're a good shepherd is whether you return the entire flock to the fold at night. you left with a hundred sheep, you come back with a hundred sheep. That's the ultimate criteria for whether you are a good shepherd. If you have a habit of coming back with fewer than you left, you're not going to have the job for very long. That's the ultimate measure. But there are other measures as well. Before you even reach the point of losing a sheep, you still have to worry about feeding the sheep and caring for the sheep and leading the sheep. So in this moment, this is evidence of his promise to grant protection as needed, to guide as needed, to make sure that all happens according to his purposes for the sake of his sheep, in accordance with his will, including raising them up on the last day after all is said and done. As Paul says so eloquently in Romans 8:28, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. In this moment, Jesus was at work to turn a very bad situation into good for those who loved him. And in that sense, he's not letting any be lost, so to speak. Now, impulsive Peter is not content to rest in those words, so he takes matters Into his own hands, he withdraws a dagger. And that's the word in Greek here. Don't think of a like Lord of the Rings kind of thing. This is this is a little dagger. He just pulls out a little dagger like this. In Greek, the word is a specific word for a very short type of sword. And then suddenly in this aimless thrust, he manages to injure the slave of the high priest. It's interesting that John names Peter here as the instigator because all four Gospels mention this moment. And only John. Sees fit to name Peter as the apostle. The other three just say an apostle did this. And in fact, as you reflect on John's gospel overall, you find John calling out Peter quite often in the stories that he tells time and time again in places where the other writers either overlooked the incident altogether or never named it. John takes great pains to make sure, you know, it was Peter. (laughs) By the way, I would suspect then, given that that's John's pattern that John wants us to see Peter in a more human perspective. And knowing that John wrote this at the end of the first century, quite a bit of time had passed since the first Gospels were written, and quite a bit of false teaching had started to creep into the church by that point. So perhaps John was working against that false teaching that wanted to elevate Peter to unrealistic importance in the church. And this was a correction by John's part on that. In any event, what do we make of Peter's actions? First, he was violating an accepted Jewish rule of the day which was that you could not carry a weapon on a feast day that was against Jewish rules the more important thing to note is that the entire episode is pathetic he injures a slave in a non-lethal fashion as his defense for Christ exactly what was he expecting to accomplish against a cohort of Romans with a dagger and apparently no skill in wielding it either (laughs) It's tempting to put Peter in the position of stooge, but let's assume he's not a fool. If he's not a fool, what do we conclude? We conclude that he was trying to start a melee. He cuts an ear. Roman soldiers respond by drawing weapons. Chaos ensues. Jesus escapes in the confusion, and perhaps that's what Peter thought he might achieve in the moment. Maybe he thinks by diversion he can help his, his Lord get out of the way in time to avoid capture. Who knows? He's desperate. Regardless, though, of how we might try to explain it, His actions reflect an immature perspective and ignorance of what's actually happening in this moment. Jesus has to correct him on that, as he's done before. He reminds him, look, the process that's underway is according to the will of my father. How many times have I already explained to you what has to happen? Peter's literally fighting the father, not the Romans. The other gospels record that Jesus responds by healing the slave right after this happens which is another miraculous healing of his earthly ministry. In fact, it's the last miraculous healing of Jesus's earthly ministry. Jesus's love for the man, for the slave, is evident in the fact that Jesus did not want the impact of his ministry, as carried out by his disciples, to result in an unfair injury for anyone. That's the wake of his ministry. He doesn't want his ministry on earth to have left anyone harmed. And had Jesus not healed the man, Jesus would have been liable for the actions of his disciples, so by healing the man, Jesus remains without guilt where he might have otherwise had a charge against him. Now he's captured, he's bound, and then we move on. Verse 12. So the Roman cohort and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him and led him to Annas first, for he was father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. Simon Peter was following Jesus, and so was another disciple. Now, that disciple was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter was standing at the door outside. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. When the slave girl who kept the door said to Peter, You are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the slaves and the officers were standing there, having made a charcoal fire, for it was cold, and they were warming themselves, and Peter was also with them, standing and warming himself. So, as I said, the arrest proceeds. Jesus is bound. He's led to the high priest of Israel, and he's, he's all set now for what will become a series of kangaroo courts. This is a very intricate, very complex set of things that happen over the next few hours. Uh, You really have to look across all the Gospels to piece together all the events, and and there is quite a bit going on. John shows the least of it, though he captures some things no one else does. In this case, it starts with a trial, a Jewish trial, conducted by a man, Annas, who was the high priest in that day, in a sense. And to explain what I mean, we have to back up a second. The rule of law in Israel was actually a two-part system under Roman authority. By Roman concession, the Jews were subject to Jewish law and Jewish authorities first. And then all Jews, in addition, were subject to Roman law and Roman authorities on top of that. So Roman law had ultimate authority over all Judea. But within that system, they allowed the Jews to practice their own system of law. And when we say Jewish law, we mean the law that was prescribed by Moses and All of the pharisaical rules and rabbinical traditions that have been laid on top of that law. So it's a very vast system of rules, like not carrying a weapon on a feast day and and all that. So if a Jew is accused of violating Jewish law, then they were to be prosecuted by Jewish authorities. If a Jew is accused of violating Roman law, then they would be subject to the Roman system. But only the Roman system had something called the right of the sword, which is to say the right to condemn a person to death. Jews had death penalties prescribed in their law, but they couldn't act on them without Roman involvement, without Roman permission. If they tried to act on their own law and were caught, they'd be subject to Roman law. Now, that didn't stop them from stoning someone when they thought they could get away with it. But for the most part, if they were under scrutiny from Rome, they wouldn't be able to. They'd have to appeal to the Roman authorities to carry out the death penalty on their behalf. And sometimes the Romans would do it, and sometimes they wouldn't. In this case... The charge brought against Jesus, or the charges that they're going to try to bring against Jesus, begin with charges of violating Jewish law. And so the Roman cohort was assigned to the Jewish authorities to make the arrest, acting on behalf of Jewish authorities so as to carry out Jewish law. So they would conspire together. The Romans would actually support the Jews in their prosecution of law, assisting with the arrest and so on, because Jews were not allowed any policing force of their own. So they depended on the Romans to do that work for them. And the Romans would concede to a point. So at this point, they've used the Romans to deliver Jesus to a trial officiated by Jews because they're claiming he violated Jewish law. Now, making this situation even more confusing, there are two Jewish authorities in that day, two high priests in this day. There is the legitimate high priest, a man named Annas. He was the high priest for the Jews and the ones that the Jewish people recognized as truly the high priest. He had been deposed by Romans Because he failed to concede to their authority and to live under their constraints in his place, the Romans first put his eldest son and then over the series of a couple of decades, they went through all five of his sons and then one of his grandsons and eventually they arrived at his son in law, a man named Caiaphas Caiaphas, for whatever reason, was not objecting to play the part and enjoyed, I guess, having the authority. So he continued in that for some time for several decades. It was Caiaphas, as you see here, who prophetically declared to the Sanhedrin that Jesus needed to die for the sake of the Jewish nation, not realizing the full meaning of what he was saying, of course. So in this moment, as you stand now looking at the trial about to begin, you have these two high priests, Annas, and you have Caiaphas. Now, since the Romans ruled the land, the people of Israel had no choice but to accept their decision concerning who would be officially the high priest. So the Romans' choice of Caiaphas had to be acknowledged at least superficially on the part of the Jewish people. But the people themselves still recognized Annas as their legitimate high priest, their rightful high priest, because the law of Moses said high priests serve for life. So they didn't care what the Romans did. They viewed Annas as their true high priest. But the Romans only paid attention to Caiaphas. So they had to work both sides. So therefore, you have a trial before Annas, followed by a trial before Caiaphas, followed by a trial before the Sanhedrin, followed by a trial before Pilate, followed by a trial before Herod, followed followed by another trial before Pilate. That's what happens before Jesus is finally put to death. All of that happens in the span of a few hours from early, early morning into mid-morning. John does not cover all of that. If you want more detail, the Luke study online addresses what Luke shows, which is a great deal more of that detail. But only John records the trial before Annas. Others mention it. John actually deals with some attention to it or gives some detail. Conversely, John gives no attention to the trial before Caiaphas, nor does he address the trials in front of the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin, nor in front of Herod. Instead, he focuses entirely on Annas, and then he jumps to Pilate. Since the Jews were accusing Jesus of a crime worthy of death, that final judgment has to come from Pilate. There's no way they're going to be able to carry out the judgment of death on their own. So the trial before Pilate is necessary if they get what they want, but they've got to start with their own law. They respect their own law first. So Jesus is sent to Annas' house, and now we get back to the scene. Peter is following, we're told, at a distance, naturally, right? He's curious. He wants to know what's happening, but he's probably also worried. He knows that if his rabbi is arrested and accused of high crimes and, and the Jewish authorities have this much concern about his rabbi, then they're probably going to come after him next or the other disciples. So he's attempting to blend into the crowd. He wants to be close, but he doesn't want to be identified. Then we're told another disciple also follows, one who's a more bold than Peter, He's willing to actually go into the high priest's home and observe the proceedings. And he can get in because he is apparently known by this high priest. Most believe that this disciple that John is writing about is himself. John commonly refers to himself in the third person or without any name at all. So this is consistent with that pattern. Furthermore, John's mother, Salome, was a sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus. And so John is both a cousin of Jesus and a nephew of Zechariah and Elizabeth, who were the parents of John the Baptist. Zechariah was a priest who served in the temple. So it's not impossible for John to have had a relationship with Annas based on his uncle's role as priest in the temple, serving in that way. But John's focus is on Peter. That's why he doesn't name himself, probably. I think it's funny that John lived longer than Peter. You see what happens. History is always written by the survivors. John got the last word in. John records this scene in a manner similar to the other Gospels in that he alternates between what's going on with Jesus inside and what's going on with Peter in the courtyard, back and forth. And he's doing so to draw a contrast, right? The contrast is between Jesus speaking the truth, knowing it will result in the loss of his earthly life, while Peter lies to protect his earthly life. R.E. Brown noted that as Jesus stands up to his interrogators and denies nothing, Peter cowers before his interrogators and denies everything. John eventually gets permission to bring Peter in. And as Peter passes through the door, you get the slave girl asking, you get him denying. This is the first of the three that we know are coming. John adds in verse 19 that the officers of the temple were standing there at that same time, warming themselves by this little charcoal fire. And he mentions charcoal because charcoal fires don't put out a lot of heat. If you cooked over them, they're hot right at the surface, but you stand back more than a foot or two and you're not feeling any heat. So if you're going to warm yourself and it's charcoal, you've got to get close. That's the point. You have to assume here that there is a group of men huddled very closely around this charcoal fire, and notice where Peter positions himself, right there with them. He's as close to them as he can get, because otherwise he wouldn't have got any warmth either. So when he lies to the slave girl, you have to understand he's not concerned so much with what the slave girl thinks. He's concerned with what these men who will certainly overhear him are going to think if he were to answer yes to that question because they're in such tight quarters. So his concern is for the officers next to him to have heard what this girl is asking. So his denial is for their sake. Peter feared men more than he feared God. John 18:19. the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together and I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said. When he had said this, one of the officers standing nearby struck Jesus, saying, Is that the way you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If I've spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? So Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. All of the trials were a little more than kangaroo courts. There's no attempt to even give the appearance of justice in anything that they're doing. And what I mean by that is, if you look at all the trials recorded in the Gospels and understand Jewish jurisprudence, what was required by their own system of law, and they were very scrupulous in following the rule of law when it came to these matters, at least generally they were. If you go through that process, what you'll find are there were many, many, I'm talking dozens and dozens of violations of Jewish law as recorded in the Gospels, in the way they actually conducted the trial. For example, trials could not be done at night. This is a trial at night. Trials could not be done in secret. This is a trial in secret. Trials can only be done inside the temple court. This is not in the temple court. The accused is not allowed to testify against themselves. Jesus is being asked to testify. It would be like you take the laws that we use in following court proceedings and throw them all out and just make them up as you go along. That's what's happening throughout all of the trials that you see. So there's no attempt here for an accurate, just proceeding. And you know why, of course, they've got one goal in mind and they're going to pursue it no matter what it takes. When Annas asks Jesus what he's been teaching, Jesus responds by challenging Annas to explain why he would have to ask Jesus to repeat things that have been said publicly already. What he's pointing out is that you're clearly on a fishing expedition. His question back to Annas is, your intent here is not because you lack the knowledge of these things. Your intent is to try to get me to say something and trip me up and then in what I say, hold it against me. And, of course, in doing so, what Jesus is also pointing out is that you're breaking Jewish law in a subtle way without saying it. Jesus is illustrating to the high priest that he shouldn't be asking any of these questions of Jesus. He's not permitted to. Now, at that point, you see the officer striking Christ, accusing him of speaking in the wrong way to the high priest. What's ironic here is... Annas is the one showing contempt to Jesus, and yet Jesus is the true high priest. And so the officer of the temple strikes the true high priest and rightful inhabitant of the temple, telling him he's being disrespectful to a high priest. When he's the high priest, everything's backwards. And you notice Jesus is not putting up a real fight here at all, ignoring the fact that he could call down legions of angels and all the rest. He's not even acting like a reasonable defendant. He's making no effort to exonerate himself. He's antagonizing the people there, at least in the sense that he's not playing along. What John's showing us is that Jesus does no desire to avoid the cross. There's no attempt by Jesus in any of these things to get to an outcome other than the one he knows they're going for. On the contrary, Jesus is going to orchestrate events to ensure that he lands on the cross as planned. At this point, because Annas is getting nowhere with this guy, and he's probably old and tired, he sends Jesus to Caiaphas, who lived in another part of the same structure. So when it says he was sent to Caiaphas, he walked around the corner. That's about all it took. And Jesus, in that new place, starts to suffer more of what will begin a long journey of abuse, as you know, the passion of Christ. Meanwhile, while this is going on, and as you see, John gives no attention to the, to the proceedings in Caiaphas' case, he returns his attention to Peter, because Peter is busy saving his own skin. In verse 25, Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, You are not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter then denied it again, and immediately a rooster crowed. Peter's still warming himself here. He's listening, but he's not showing himself to be associated with Jesus. And then, of course, these questions come. One of those at the fire asks him, That's his second opportunity to deny Christ in keeping with Christ's prophecy. Now, what's interesting is Peter heard the prophecy. He denies the first one, but you would have thought right after that that maybe it would have jogged his memory and he would have thought back and he would have said, wait a minute, you told me I was going to do this. And look, here I am. I've already done it once. Okay, I'm going to stop there. And then it comes again and he denies him a second time. Now he's thinking, oh, that's two strikes. Whatever I do from this point forward, I can't do that third one. And right after that, he gets to the question a third time, and of course, he can't stop. In rapid succession, he issues that final damning denial, and then the rooster crows. Now, in the other Gospels, this scene plays out with far more detail, and it's very striking. We learn that Peter's third denial is strong. He speaks with profanity when he says it the third time. And it's that third one that Jesus hears from within the room that he's in, in that structure. And there's some open windows such that Jesus and Peter can make eye contact at that point, which they do. And as they do, Peter leaves the room in shame and weeps bitterly outside, we're told, in Matthew's gospel. He is crushed by what he experiences. He does not show up again in the narratives until he's found fishing later in this gospel. And Jesus, as you may know, we're getting ahead of where we are. But as you know, probably Jesus reinstates Peter at that point by asking him to confess him essentially three times. We'll come back to that. At this point, Jesus' time with Caiaphas ends, and as Caiaphas settles on some trumped-up charge of blasphemy on which Jesus is to be tried at the Sanhedrin, then John skips over all that, skips over the Sanhedrin trial, and takes us directly to the trial of Pilate, the man with the authority to put Jesus to death. John also ignores the brief time Jesus spent before Herod, as I said, because the focus for John is Pilate's dilemma in condemning an obviously Innocent man. Now, here again, you see the unavoidable march to the cross orchestrated by God himself through the agency of these people. And yet everything should have argued for the opposite conclusions, demonstrating that the power that's forcing this outcome is not human. The Sanhedrin eventually arrive at a uh, charge of blasphemy and they claim Jesus is blaspheming because he said he was God. Uh, the problem with that charge is that Rome doesn't recognize blasphemy as a crime. So you're not going to get Pilate to agree to put a man to death because he blasphemed a God they don't believe in. So the Sanhedrin also charged Jesus with sedition against Rome for claiming to be king. And they hope that that's enough to to persuade the Romans to put him to death. So they take Jesus to the Praetorium, it's called. We'll see that here in a second, which is the Latin word meaning the headquarters of a Roman military governor. Pilate was the procurator of the Judean province of the Roman Empire at the time. His normal headquarters was in Caesarea, which is quite a distance away. But he always moved his headquarters from Caesarea to Jerusalem during any of the feasts of the year because they always feared Jewish uprisings during the feast time. In this case, his headquarters is most likely Herod's former palace, which is along the western wall of the city. And it's here then that Jesus will be interrogated and presented before the crowds. Verse 28, then they led Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium and it was early and they themselves did not enter into the praetorium so that they would not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. Therefore, Pilate went out to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, if this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. So Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. The Jews said, we are not permitted to put anyone to death. To fulfill the word of Jesus, which he spoke, signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. It's a bit humorous here. The ones who led Jesus to Pilate won't dare enter into the headquarters of Pilate because this is the day of Passover. Remember, Passover starts, as all Jewish days do, at sundown. And so it was sundown the night earlier when this day of Passover began. They did the, the meal with Jesus and the disciples that night, which we call the Last Supper. And then it was in the garden overnight that he's been taken captive. And then it was in the early morning hours that he's gone through the Jewish trials and the Sanhedrin trial. And it's about daybreak. Roman officials typically started their work days very early, like 6 a.m., but they finished by about 10 a.m. Not a bad schedule, I guess, if you can get it, probably for the heat. But in any event, this would have been natural for them to be at work very, very early, around 6 a.m. And so they bring him to the praetorium at the crack of dawn whenever he's open for business, but they won't go in because this is still part of that Passover day. And they would be declared unclean according to their own rules if they were to walk into a Gentile home on a day of feast. And the reason they would be declared unclean is because under the law of Moses, you could not have leaven in your home, yeast, on the day of Passover, on this particular feast day. And they can't be certain that the home they're walking into has no leaven if it's a Gentile home. So they wouldn't do it on risks that they might be made unclean. Here again, another tremendous irony. They want to preserve their opportunity to participate in the Passover, which is a feast that pictures the sacrifice to take away sins, and all the while they're conspiring to murder the Son of God who is preparing to take away their sins by his death. So they want to preserve the picture while ignoring the reality. Notice also they say they want to eat the Passover meal. That reminds us of what we learned back when we looked at the Last Supper, right, which is at the normal time for the Passover meal, according to Scripture, is before sundown at the end of the Passover day. So the last event of the day of Passover is that the family gathers with the lamb that had been sacrificed earlier on that day and eats it. And you have to eat it all before sundown because at sundown you're done with the Passover, you're into the next day. This is a Thursday, Jesus is is crucified on a Thursday, so you have a Thursday Morning 6 a.m. They're going to be eating passover before sundown that night thursday But jesus and the disciples ate their meal the night before remember that and we said that was very unusual That was uncharacteristic. They were literally having their passover meal before any lambs had ever been killed which didn't take place till the daytime of the next day. And we tried to reconcile and we looked at all of that. And you remember we came to the conclusion as we studied all that, that Jesus had constructed that meal out of the normal time period because there's no way he could do it in the normal time period. He'd be dead by then because he is the lamb. But that's also why there was no lamb at the meal at the table when they met in the upper room. There's never a lamb mentioned. There's no lamb at the table. They never had a lamb because none have been killed because Jesus is the lamb. He says, my body, my blood, what they used as the lamb at the table was the lamb of God. So that Passover used him in the sense that he was present at the table and it was his flesh that would be sacrificed the next day. So he has moved it out of the normal practice. That's why when we practice it today, we don't call it a Passover meal because what he did was he took the Passover and repurposed it for a future fulfillment in the day that the kingdom stood up. So he said, I'll finish this meal with you when we eat in the kingdom together. So the whole thing is taken as a picture fulfilled and then repurposed into a new picture and then projected into a future fulfillment. All centered on the picture of Jesus as the lamb. Because these men remain outside Pilate's home, it creates this really funny. In fact, I'd love to see this this scene in a play that's done properly anyway, or in a movie where you have these Jewish guys outside the home refusing to go in, Pilate with Jesus inside the home trying to adjudicate, and it forces Pilate to shuttle between the priests and Jesus to conduct the trial. But that in itself creates this beautiful commentary, this powerful picture of a man being manipulated and vacillating between two powerful forces who are really calling all the shots. Between evil and good. And John's narrative diminishes Pilate in this way for good reason. It reflects how little power this man truly has in all of what transpires. He's just a shuttlecock being bounced back and forth. And the whole scene plays out that way physically because of the fact that they won't go in the building. And as I said, if you look at the other Gospels, he's doing this a lot. He's with Jesus twice over extended periods of time. There's this back and forth constantly. So let's begin with what John records. Pilate first asks these men, what crime... Are you accusing Jesus of committing? They answer indignantly, well, why would we have to tell you why? The reason they're so indignant is they probably expected Pilate to rubber stamp whatever they brought to him. I don't think they expected any kind of serious trial. After all, they'd already received a Roman cohort to conduct the arrest. That might have led them to think that Rome was just going to let them get whatever they wanted without any questioning at all. So they had not come prepared to defend the charge. All they expected was that the man would just say, fine, do what you want with him. When they realize they're going to have to essentially retry Jesus in front of Pilate, they withhold any further information because they don't have any proof. There's no way they could back up the charge at this point. So biding for time and I think hoping to sidestep the trial, they say to Pilate, well, look, if we didn't have a good reason, we wouldn't bother you. Just accept us on our word. Well, obviously, in this case, it's just an excuse for not having a legitimate accusation. And Pilate must have sensed that. Because then he responds by saying, well, if it's just something you have, you should just judge them under your own law then. What does it mean to me then? But then they object and they say, well, the problem here, Pilate, is we can't kill him. And he's done something worthy of death. So when they reveal that to him, when they reveal the Pilate that we're talking about a capital offense, well, that makes everything much more serious. Now, Pilate gets far more engaged, far more interested. He has to take this more seriously at this point. And John says at this point, he brings him in. For the trial. Now, John says also that when it says that Jesus could not be killed by the Jews, but must be tried by the Romans, that fulfilled Jesus' word concerning the manner of his death. What John means is that Jesus has said that he is going to die by a specific manner, back in John chapter 3 and John chapter 12. Under Jewish law, there's only one way in which someone was put to death stoning, with some exceptions. But Romans never practiced stoning as a means of execution. So when the Jews said, we can't kill him, you will have to kill him, it immediately took stoning out of the picture as a possible way to kill Jesus. And the reason that fulfills scripture is, first, Jesus specifically said he would have to be lifted up like the serpent that Moses held up in John 3 and in John 12. In Deuteronomy 21, God declares that anyone hung on a tree is deemed to be cursed, of God and Bible says Jesus was accursed for our sake according to Isaiah. Third, death by crucifixion pulls the body out of joint while at the same time generally speaking it avoids breaking any bones that fulfills Psalm 22 that said all his joints would be out of socket and Psalm 34 that says not a bone in his body would be broken. Fourth, It brings both Gentiles and Jews together in the act of putting Jesus to death so that we can say all humanity is responsible for his suffering, whereas if it had been stoning, you'd be saying it was only Jewish people that were responsible, sometimes a slander that you still hear today. That's clearly not true. Both sides were involved. So when you look at the list of things that had to be fulfilled, if you had stoned Jesus, every single one of those would have been denied. Bones would have been broken, joints not put out of place, and so on down the list. So he had to have been done something other than the Jewish way, and that's what John is referring to. So then, Pilate returns to ask Jesus, Now, I've heard you're guilty of something worthy of death. What's all this about? Verse 33. Pilate entered again into the praetorium. Here we go, back inside. And he summons Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Are you saying this on your own initiative, or did others tell you about me? Pilate answered, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priest delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. So Pilate begins asking a very specific question. He says, Are you king of the Jews? Now, John doesn't record it, but we know from Luke chapter 23, verse 2, that the Jewish authorities told Pilate this accusation in the beginning. So that's where Pilate heard it. They chose to put those words in Jesus' mouth that he said he is king of the Jews. They took his expression, which is he said he was the Christ, and they twisted it a little and said he's trying to be the king of the Jews, meaning an earthly king. But, of course, they framed this issue in such a way that it sounds like a threat to Roman authority in the land. They're hoping to convince Pilate, you got a guy here who wants to do you in and take your job. So Pilate asked Jesus, is this true? You want to be king of the Jews? In the other Gospels, you see Jesus said to answer this affirmatively, John does record that eventually in verse 37, but right away in the others, you hear Jesus saying yes. He says, it is as you say. But John also wants us to know that Jesus didn't stop there. So John records some extra things you don't get from the other Gospels. In his response, Jesus asks Pilate this funny question. He says, well, why are you asking me this question? Did you arrive at this conclusion on your own or did someone tell you this? Jesus wants to know if Pilate's asking out of his own curiosity or if he's asking as part of the trap set by the Jewish leaders and and Pilate's just playing their trap for them. Why does Jesus care? Why does he care? Well, he wants to know so that he can adjust his response. Because presumably, had Pilate somehow indicated that he had sincere curiosity about Jesus, then what would Jesus have done? Well, then he would have responded openly like he does in other situations. But on the other hand, if Pilate shows he's merely working to confirm what the Jewish leaders have accused him of, then Jesus isn't going to condescend to that game. He's not going to give in to it. In the other Gospels, we're told Pilate shuttles between Jesus and the religious leaders multiple times during this moment to hear a barrage of accusations. So it's not just as simple. But in this moment, Jesus is more interested in, where do you stand, Pilate? And then look at Pilate's response. It gives the answer Jesus needs. It's sarcastic. He says, I'm not a Jew, am I? Which is another way of saying, Do you think I really care who you are? Why would I care who you are? You're a Jew. And secondly, it tells you that his interest is merely for the sake of the proceedings. In other words, he says, I'm just trying to get to the bottom of this. And I'm not interested in whether you're truly Messiah or not. And because he's not interested in the truth, well, then Jesus, he just goes directly to the point. He says, my kingdom is not your kingdom. I'm not interested in your job. You have nothing to worry about when it comes to your power. By the time I enter into my kingdom, the Roman Empire, it will be long gone from the earth. In fact, all Gentile kingdoms will be long gone from the earth. So for Jesus' kingdom being of another world, a world yet to come, not even present on the earth, there's no way that Pilate needs to fear what Jesus is seeking. What you're seeing Jesus do is show you he was not finished with his earthly ministry of saving souls, even at this late hour in his walk. Remember, he said he came not to judge, but to save in the first coming of Christ. So as long as he is still alive on the earth, He continues to leave the door open for more people to come to him and be saved, even those who are in the process of condemning him. And if you think forward, knowing what comes after all of this, he keeps doing this. He does it all the way until when? To the thief crucified next to him on the cross. So his mission to save in his first coming never stops, even as he's going through the crucifixion process, right? To the women, he says, don't weep for me, weep for your children. He's ministering the whole way down the process of dying. Furthermore, Jesus says, my followers are not presently fighting you, Pilate. And that's notable. He says if his followers had intended to compete with Rome for power, then when Jesus was arrested by Rome, well, they would have taken up arms to defend him against Rome, right? That would make sense. But they're not. They're not fighting to free him. They didn't attack the soldiers in the garden, which means this isn't a kingdom they're fighting for. They're not vying over this kingdom. That's an important principle. What Jesus is teaching is his followers, which then would mean us as well. We cannot confuse who our enemy is with who we're fighting for. Jesus's followers fight. Yes, we fight against the enemy. The enemy is Satan. The enemy are Satan and his demons. Paul says clearly in Ephesians 6:12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. So ours is a spiritual battle. And so our tactics and our weapons have to be spiritual in nature. You fight through the sword of the spirit. You fight through prayer. You fight through personal sacrifice. As Paul says in Romans 12, 1, you understand your enemy is strong, but your king is stronger. You enter the battle with confidence, but you have to be wise as serpents as well. You don't invite harm when you don't need to. And yet, the people that you encounter are, who oppose you and oppose Christ, they are not your enemies. We contend with evil people at times, but you look past them individually and understand they are pawns in a spiritual chess match against the enemy. And therefore, those people are not the enemy. They're the reason you're fighting the battle. Humanity is your mission field, not your battlefield. And so you have to see unbelievers who oppose us as potential converts and you treat them accordingly. That's why Jesus said, love those who persecute you. That's the whole concept behind it. It's not just being magnanimous. It's about the fact that that's how you win them. The whole point of why you even engage with them is to win them over if you may. And that's why Jesus responds gently to Pilate at first, seeking to know if he's open to the truth. Is this an evangelism moment or not? Even to the one who would convict him. Even now he's looking past the flesh to understand that the enemy is the real target. Later in chapter 19, Jesus is going to explain this very truth to Pilate in explaining to him what his purpose is. Now, in this matter, there's nothing to be gained by Jesus or his followers in terms of resisting the will of the Jews or the Romans. There's no benefit to fighting them. As we said already, spiritually speaking, these events are exactly as they should be. They're going exactly according to God's plan. So fighting is not an option. That's why Jesus explains to Pilate, you don't need to worry about me or about my followers. Verse 37 Therefore, Pilate said to him, Oh, so you are a king. Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate says to him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I release someone for you at the Passover. Do you wish that I should release you the king of the Jews? So they cried out again, saying, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. Well, upon hearing him refer to his kingdom, Pilate says to Jesus, oh, so you are a king. What he's trying to do, of course, is trap Jesus into admitting something by which he could accuse him of or find some cause for why he's being accused. Jesus already denied being a threat, but Pilate isn't convinced on that. So he's looking for something else. He's pressing. Jesus just responds by saying, yep, what you say is right. And then. He says, "My very earthly life is intended to testify to the truth of this identity—that I am King." To which Pilate famously and cynically replies, "What is truth?" You know, for a man who spent most of his life—or certainly his his professional life—surrounded by politicians, uh, and then having to judge cheats and liars and criminals of various sorts, for someone like that, you know, it's not hard to understand why Pilate has no confidence in finding truth. For him, the whole idea of truth is probably something he long ago gave up trying to find. And in his response, he's sort of mildly mocking the naivete of Jesus, this idealistic mentality that says there's something like absolute truth and you're just going to live for the truth. He's jaded on the whole concept. And his perspective would have been correct if Jesus was just a man. But Jesus is the truth. He is the one who knows all things. He is always true. He is the one in which there is no lie. But Pilate is a man who lived in the world, which belongs to the father of lies. So he's saturated with that expectation. So after posing the question to Jesus, you notice it's interesting. Pilate is said to have just left immediately, John says, as if to say he asks what is truth and leaves before Jesus would have had any chance to answer the question, which is so ironic because Jesus is the one and only person who could have answered Pilate's question. He's not looking for the answer because he lives in a world in which that answer doesn't exist. In the end, Pilate declares Jesus is not guilty. This is one of several such declarations. If you weave them all together across all the Gospels, there's, I think, four or five moments in which Jesus is declared out loud by someone to be innocent of everything. And yet, of course, the trial goes forward. John greatly condenses this whole scene we've been looking at in the Gospels because in the other Gospels, as I said, you have these multiple back and forths between Pilate and the Jewish leaders. And more than once in all of those back and forth moments, more than once, Pilate tries to release Jesus. But every time he tries to do it, the Jewish authorities object intensely against letting that happen, demanding that Pilate go forward. In fact, accusing Pilate of being disloyal to Caesar if he doesn't keep Jesus accountable. So they pressure Pilate the whole time. Their determination to see Jesus die is confusing to Pilate. You can see that when you look at some of the other Gospels. Pilate just doesn't get it. Every time Pilate looks at Jesus, he's innocent. Every time he goes to the Jewish leaders, they think he's the worst thing that's ever been born, and he can't reconcile the two, and he thinks there must be something more here that I'm missing. So he keeps worrying about it and going over it and going over it. The scales begin to tip in favor of punishing Jesus once Pilate takes Jesus out before the crowd. A crowd would have gathered around Pilate's headquarters this morning, presumably to hear the result of Jesus's trial, among other business that might be conducted there. And Pilate has this idea. He thinks he can turn the crowd to his advantage in helping him settle this matter with regard to the Jewish authorities. And here's what he's thinking. His plan is, if I take Jesus out before the crowd and I appeal to them on the basis of this tradition that he mentions, Well, then I'll have an advantage. And and the tradition he's speaking of here is one that had grown up not long before. It was something that was relatively recent where Rome would release one Jewish prisoner on Passover to the crowd. That tradition is not mentioned anywhere in history outside of the Gospels. So it probably had just developed recently and, and it didn't last very long. I'm sure Pilate wants to use this tradition to bypass the pressure of the Jewish leaders and also so he can take the temperature of the Jewish crowd. Here's why he's worried about riots. He's worried about unrest, and he's not quite sure which way the wind is blowing on this issue of Jesus. Does the crowd love him? Does the crowd hate him? Are the Jewish authorities speaking on behalf of the crowd, or do they just have a vendetta against Jesus? He needs to understand the bigger picture politically. He knows the Roman soldiers in Jerusalem are more than sufficient to put down any kind of uprising that might develop. That's not the concern. The concern is he can't afford any unrest whatsoever. Pilate came into his position of power because his predecessors could not keep the peace in Judea and the Caesar in Rome kept removing these procurators until he could find someone who could actually keep control of the Jewish people. So Caesar demands peace in Judea. Pilate, therefore, has strong incentive to avoid any riot at any cost in the city. So he assumes this. He says, if I bring Jesus before the crowd in this way and they approve his release, then I can orchestrate his release without the risk of an angry mob, because the crowd has asked for it. Meanwhile, I don't have to care what the Jewish leaders think anymore, because they're not going to have the political power to to raise up a mob against me if the mob itself has said they wanted Jesus released. So it's his way to get around stubborn leaders that he apparently can't negotiate with. But he makes a strategic blunder in what he does here. In the other Gospels, you're told that the Jewish leaders have been secretly moving about the crowd in advance, influencing them, against Jesus by appealing to the crowd. Then Pilate is unwittingly playing into the hands of the Jewish leaders. So when Pilate asks his fateful question, the crowd responds Barabbas, probably much to Pilate's horror. Pilate has chosen a well-known and little loved mercenary Barabbas as the alternative to Jesus. This was another part of his plan. He expected the crowd's choice to be easy and obvious. Barabbas seems to have been a career criminal. For example, John's gospel says he's a robber, but the book of Acts has him quoted to be a murderer. Luke says he led an insurrection against Rome, and Matthew says he was notorious, which means everybody knew he was a troublemaker. So he's not loved by anybody, not you, not Roman. Nevertheless, when he is the one that Pilate conveniently picks to pair up against Jesus, they go for Barabbas, which is a strange choice to say the least. But the names of these two individuals reveal why the crowd went after Barabbas and the true reason why Barabbas was chosen. His name means son of Abba. Abba is the Aramaic word for father. So both Jesus and Barabbas are sons of their fathers. Jesus is the son of the perfect father of lights. He is a perfect representation of his perfection. And Jesus is the firstborn among all his brethren, among all believers, so that those who are born again by faith in him Assume his likeness and eventually his perfection. And Jesus and his children, therefore, are enemies of the world. And then you have, on on the other hand, Barabbas, who is the son of his father, Satan. He is the perfect representation of Satan and Adam's sinful nature brought into its fullness. He's a liar, a thief, a murderer, and a usurper of thrones. He is a poster child for all those who remain in their sin and are enemies of God. So the choice before the crowd couldn't be more stark or more representative of what was at stake in that moment. As scripture teaches, the child of the bondwoman will always persecute the children of the free woman. Cain persecuted Abel, Ishmael persecuted Isaac, Barabbas' people persecuted Christ. The other gospels tell us that Pilate put Jesus before the crowd twice in this way. We only hear of once here. And in each case, in the hope that maybe they change their mind. So at this point, Pilate resorts to one last ploy, the last thing we cover tonight. And this was to try to gain Jesus a little more sympathy with the crowd so that he could present him one more time and maybe that last time would work. He scourges Jesus. John 19, verse 1. Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him. And they began to come up to him and said, Hail, King of the Jews, and to give him slaps in the face. Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I'm bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus then came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. John gives a single sentence in verse 1 to the scourging. But that punishment is especially cruel. You may have seen depictions of it or whatever, but Arnold Frickenbaum has a wonderful short quote that sums it up well. He says, The Roman custom of scourging was one of the cruelest forms of torture. Forty lashes were swung against the victim. The whip itself contained numerous leather straps which had glass and pieces of sharp metal fixed at the end that would lacerate the flesh. The scourging was not limited to the back but was applied over the whole body. The flesh would be torn away and bone would be exposed. Quite often the prisoners died just from the scourging alone. Isaiah 52:14 prophesied the Messiah's scourging. The prophet stated, That Messiah's person was so marred, so disfigured, that he no longer resembled a man. This is the scourging done merely to bloody him to the point that when he's represented to the crowd, he becomes a sympathetic figure deserving mercy. And to make him look even more pathetic, Pilate puts a crown of thorns on Jesus and Herod's robe. This is a robe Herod put on Jesus when he was in the trial at Herod's palace. Herod put his own robe on Jesus, sent him back to Pilate wearing his robe. And as Luke records, that actually sparked a nice friendship between Herod and Pilate that hadn't existed before. I'm not quite sure what about that made them friends. But in any event, Jesus has got that robe. But that crown, the crown of thorns, that is a particularly significant detail because of its connection to the Garden of Eden. After the sin in the garden... God pronounced a curse on all flesh and on creation itself as a result of the sin that God discovered in the garden. And that curse decreed, among other things, that the earth would produce thorns and weeds. That is, that life would become hard, that men would now have the the need to work where before they had rest. And men would live under this curse, we're told, until the day Messiah removes it. Here you see the Messiah bearing the curse in the symbolic sense of thorns, for our sake, pictured by this crown, and in the process being mocked and slapped and beaten by those he is working to save, by soldiers among others. And then Pilate brings Jesus out, and of course we know what he's expecting. What he's expecting at this point is that the crowd would see this pathetic figure, beaten and whipped beyond recognition, bloody from head to toe, with a mocking of crown and and purple robe, probably barely able to stand, and before he even delivers him to the crowd, he says, I have found that this man is innocent and guilty of nothing. He sets up the scene, and this is, by the way, if you've been counting through all the Gospels, this is the fourth time someone's just said that about Jesus. And finally, he says, behold the man. And that statement, in, in the way it's said, is, it, it, it implies a kind of pathetic statement. He's basically saying, look how pathetic this man is. And that statement also stands as testimony to all of us of the extent God had to go to to condemn sin and rescue us through Christ. Dear Heavenly Father, a sobering end to the study, as it should be, Father, to contemplate what sin required and to consider that we avoid that penalty, Father, not because of anything we do or anything we deserve, but strictly because of your love for us and Your the obedience of, of our Lord who willingly put himself in our place in these things. And with the power to stop it at any moment, and yet the will to obey despite that, Father, what an example for each of us that even in the worst of moments we can be obedient. And no matter what the world would come throw at us and, and the enemy would try to do to us, Father, we can, we can seek to emulate our, our Lord in, in obedience, doing all that's required. For we know, Father, that because he did that, his reward was great and his name will be great. And if we obey you, Father, we know you have great things for us as well. We pray, Father, you give us the courage to be that that minister, that witness to the world who is who is dying to know you even before they know it. And at the same time, Father, you would remind us that we don't war against them. They are our mission field. They are the ones we war for. And that we would always look past the insults and the injury and consider that the enemy is the cause of these things and sin uh, is the motivation, and we can look past that so that we can be kind and loving as Jesus was. Give us that desire, Father. Give us another chance to study next week, and then the week after that to finish this study. We ask these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.